Yes, thank you, Pastor Sam, for that introduction. Uh, good morning on this Palm Sunday. I'm really glad to be here with all of you. And yeah, I uh, oversee our college group, and I might be familiar to you know some of us, but for some of uh, us that are newer, I might not be as familiar. So um, you know, before we get to the preaching of God's word, I want to acknowledge that I've been so encouraged uh, just by all the newcomers, all the new faces that I've been seeing over the past couple of months, which is amazing. We've even had um, new members sworn in. So that's really cool that we're able to do that. And yeah, it's it's been a while since I preached for our church. Um, and it, it's the first time I'm doing it over Zoom. So in one sense, I, I'm, I'm kind of gradually, uh, you know, progressing from just pre-recorded where there's no audience. I don't know how the word's going to land. And then now at the same time, it's, it's encouraging to kind of see different faces. But at the same time, I've never seen so many faces this close to me while I preach. So we'll see how it goes today. Um, but as Pastor Sam mentioned, we're going to be taking a break from our series on Genesis as we begin what Christians all over the world call Holy Week. And in our church calendar, Christmas and Easter, these are the two most important days. And Holy Week refers to all of the days, the week leading up to Easter Sunday. And all that being said, Holy Week, it begins with what is traditionally known as the triumphal entry. And the passage that we're going to look at is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. So um, please take out your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12, you know, put your finger there, we'll be getting into it. And as you look in your Bibles, your iPads, or whatever devices, um, just want to mention that all four of the Gospels include this account of the triumphal entry. And, and that really shows just how important it is. Um, but our, our passage today, John's account, is actually the shortest. It's the most bare bone, if you want to say. Um, so, yes, if you're there with me, I'll go ahead and read the passage for us. So this is John chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 12 and end in 19. This is a reading of God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remember that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is a reading of God's word. Uh, you know, one of the things that I despise the most um, are spoilers. And, you know, whenever there's a new movie or a TV show that comes out, I, I'm always on high alert, especially if it's uh, a show that I'm interested in. Um, and it's obvious why it's because I don't want the ending to be spoiled. Uh, and for example, our collegians know this because I share this every time, every Friday, but I started watching Korean dramas uh, near the end of 2020 because uh, COVID, you know, nothing else to do. And also because I, I felt left out because so many members of our church, they watch Korean dramas. They're always talking about it. So I'm like, I need to get in on this. Let me let me catch up. Um, I'm not going to name all the dramas I've watched, but I realized that I would have to give a disclaimer anytime I would talk about a Korean drama or, or a show or whatever with someone. 
um, because I didn't want to uh, potentially get the ending spoiled or, or what the new episode um, happened. And again, it's pretty obvious why. It's because I want to see for myself. I want to experience the, the, the surprising love triangle or the, the character's true identity being revealed. I want to, for the first time, experience it myself. Uh, but interestingly, uh, there's a study out there by a psychology professor uh, named Nicholas Christenfeld, and he's from UC San Diego. So shout out Tritons. Um, but he says that spoilers, they actually help us to enjoy the story more. Um, basically, what he's saying is that spoilers, uh, knowing the ending, it helps us to understand the purpose of the narrative, and it helps us to enjoy the little details and the plot points of the story. Now, uh, you can agree or disagree, uh, it's up to you, but I think this principle, uh, it's applicable to our sermon today. Uh, if you've grown up going to church, and even if you didn't, uh, you're probably familiar with the story of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry, right? Some of us, when we were little kids, we might have been part of the play, right? We have the, the palm branches, and we're kind of waving them. Uh, the poor guy, you know, had to, one of them had to dress up as a donkey, and, and the smaller kid is, you know, Jesus riding on top of him. Uh, but overall, we, we're kind of familiar with the story of Palm Sunday, Right. And this day is the beginning of our Easter season. It's the beginning of Holy Week. So we might have heard countless sermons on Palm Sunday, but the significance. And, and at this point, this might just be another familiar story, just another familiar passage of the Bible. And, and I think the danger in that, I think the danger of familiar stories is they lose their significance. You know, after we hear it one, two, couple times, it loses the weight, the meaning, the impact in our lives. And by no means am I going to present, uh, you know, a radically different uh, approach or spin on Palm Sunday. It's going to be pretty traditional, because uh, if I did, um, it would probably be my last sermon at GLMC. But uh, this morning, I want to approach Palm Sunday, and specifically the triumphal entry from the perspectives of all the different characters that we find in our passage. Um, not all of the characters know what's happening. But because we today, we have the Bible, we have, I guess, the spoilers to the story. We know the ending to the story. And my hope is that because we know the ending, that we're going to be able to pick up on the small little details that we might have missed, that we might have forgotten over the ages. So um, there's going to be four characters that we're going to look at. First, we're going to be looking at the crowd. John spends a lot of time focusing on the crowd, and they're going to reveal the, the main issue, the main conflict in our story. So we're going to look at the crowd, and then we're going to look at, second, Jesus. How does Jesus respond to this conflict, right? What is the significance of his response, and what does it tell us today? And then after we look at Jesus, we're going to be looking at the disciples. We're going to see what's going on in their minds as Jesus uh, enters. What's going on? What's their understanding of this scene as it plays out? And then lastly, uh, we're going to look at the Pharisees. You know, what, what's verse 19 all about? What's that random dialogue at the end of the passage, right? What do they contribute to the story? So if you're taking notes, we're going to take a look at four characters, the crowd, Jesus, the disciples, and the Pharisees. So first, we're going to take a look at the crowd. I'm going to read first verse 12 again. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
right? Verse 12, it shows us that this isn't just a crowd of a, of a few dozen people, but it's a, it's a huge crowd. It's a large crowd. And, and just for some context, uh, the population in Jerusalem back then, normally about 50,000 people. So, you know, even today, that's a pretty, pretty decent sized city. Um, but at this time, it's actually the, the Passover festival, right? All these uh, Jewish people were coming uh, to celebrate the Passover. So that about doubled the number of people there. So it's about 100,000, 120,000 people in this city. Definitely not COVID friendly, right? There wasn't e enough housing for everyone. It's likely that people were kind of uh, camping out in the hills around the city, around the town. So this crowd, think, think of a, a Lakers or a Dodgers championship parade, that type of nasty crowd where everyone's shoulder to shoulder. I'm looking forward to the day we have those parades, but who knows? But not only were there a bunch of people in that crowd, but verse 12 tells us that they had all heard. They'd all heard about this miracle worker named Jesus and that he was coming to Jerusalem. They didn't know specifically who this person was, but they had heard about what he had done. Where do we get this? Uh, verse 17 and 18 tells us, right? The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, right? I, I remember when I was an undergrad, a lot of NBA teams, whenever they would play the Lakers or the Clippers, they would come to our school's gym to have shoot around and practice and whatnot. And I specifically remember very vividly, it was during that uh, uh, reign of uh, the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, when they were winning championship, we heard that they had come onto campus, right? And I kid you not, when I got a text from one of my friends, uh, I saw not just myself, but other classmates just immediately leaving and then we would run down to the student activity center just to see if we can get a picture with Steph Curry or, or, or maybe even just kind of like see them for ourselves in real life. And it was nasty, man. Like people were just rushing, trampling over each other, trying to get to the bus. And none of us had a personal relationship with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, uh, all these other famous players, right? But we had seen, we had heard, we knew what these people could do. They were special. And I imagine this is what it was like for the crowd too. Just a, a frenzy of people trying to get even a glimpse of this miracle worker, of this Jesus that they had heard so much about. Uh, but the passage makes it clear that they had come because of what Jesus had done, right? Which was to raise Lazarus from the dead. This was a sign they had heard about. And what this shows us is that the crowd, they were more concerned about what Jesus did than who Jesus was. Uh, put it in another way, they were looking for a miracle instead of the miracle worker. So what did they do, right? What is their response? What is the crowd's response? Verse 13, what do they do? So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Right, this, this verse is actually where we get the term Palm Sunday from. There's a lot of significance in this one verse. I hope it doesn't get too nerdy for all of us, but um, for some of us, we might be so familiar. So I want to try to refresh our minds and uh, explain what's going on in this one verse. Because you see, by this time, palm trees, palms, they were the, the national symbol of Israel. You know, palm branches, about a century and a half before the triumphal entry, 
the people of Israel, they were waving palm branches for this man named Judas Maccabeus, funny name. Um, and he was a hero because he had led uh, a revolution against the Syrians who had taken over the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So, so they were hailing their hero. They were hailing Judas Maccabeus with palm trees. So when he returned again, the crowd then waved their palm branches for his triumphant entry. And instead of waiting for Judas Maccabees to come in, they go out, just like the crowd in our story, just like I did to go see the Golden State Warriors, right? And they go out to escort him back into the city. And, you know, it's, it's March Madness, and the UCLA Bruins are still somehow in the tournament. We're going to be playing uh, Alabama in a couple of hours. And, and one of my fondest college memories uh, was uh, when we beat Michigan at Poly Pavilion. Right. I was a senior. Everyone was wearing blue and yellow. We were we had our jerseys, our hoodies, shirts, all, everything. And, and we blew out Michigan. And, and effectively, those jerseys, those shirts, that UCLA gear, those were our version of palm branches. You know, after the game, I was giving high fives to people. I didn't even know we were we were holding each other and, you know, doing the eight clap and we we're celebrating. What we were doing is we were showing our allegiance to our school to the number one public university in America. And that's what the crowd was doing. They were declaring their allegiance to Jesus. The crowd waving the palm branches, that was not just a neutral act. It symbolized the hope of a nation, the hope of Israel. And if the palm branches weren't clear enough, they were also screaming out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And we sang that song today. Thank you, Brother Eric, for leading us in that song. Hosanna is a familiar term for some of us. You know, we sing it in a praise song every now and then, usually around Easter season. But the word is an Aramaic word that literally means save or save now. And these words actually seem to be taken from Psalm 118. You can take a look there for yourself. And this psalm was a call for Yahweh, for God to save Israel, to deliver them. But that last phrase that the crowd says, even the king of Israel, that's not part of the psalm. That's not part of Psalm 118. So the reason they're saying this, the only reason they could be saying even the king of Israel was they saw Jesus as their king. They saw him as their Messiah. They saw Jesus as the one who would save them. See, Jesus was the one they were shouting Hosanna to, to, to save them from Roman rule. Okay, now this seems all well and good, right? You might think then, okay, what's the application of this? You know, is it to imitate the crowds? Are we just supposed to welcome Jesus into our hearts? Say Hosanna a couple times, maybe find a palm branch and wave it? No, I, I think what's going on here is the crowd is showing us the main issue, the main conflict of the story. And that issue is they didn't know who Jesus actually was. They called him king. They were saying Hosanna, but they didn't know what kind of a king Jesus was. Because in their minds, because Jesus had done all these miracles, even raising up a dead man to life, they thought this was the Messiah. This was a king that was finally going to deliver them from Rome. Israel would be uh, liberated and finally would rule itself. The miracle of Lazarus's resurrection, it was twisted into Jerusalem's political hopes and aspirations. And we see that the crowd had finally found someone to fulfill their own agenda. 
And in a lot of ways, isn't that the case for us today as well? Right? We might give lip service. We might acknowledge Jesus. We might call him king, Lord, master, all these things. But functionally, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we just want Jesus to fulfill our agenda? Right? We have these, these ideas and dreams. And don't we want Jesus to be the one that just makes them come true? Don't we latch on to whatever shows even a small promise, a small sign of deliverance in our lives, right? We might sing praise, we might sing Hosanna, even lift our hands during worship, but in our hearts, deep down, are we really just hoping that that short stock that we see trending on TikTok, that's going to deliver us from the middle class, right? We might lift up a prayer each morning, but deep down inside in our heart of hearts, are we just looking for a friend to hear us out, a significant other to save us from singleness or, or a child to fulfill that American dream of two and a half kids, white picket fence? You know, we might even faithfully serve within the church, but if we look at our effort at our workplace, even if we're working from home, doesn't it reflect that we think our careers are gonna be what ultimately saves us? See, the question for us today is who are we shouting Hosanna to? What are we hoping will save us now? Is it the king? Is the king that we're looking for to really Jesus Christ? Or is it any of these things around us that we think will satisfy our material desires? You know, the crowd's words, Hosanna, said one thing, but their motives, it said otherwise. Right? In fact, later in this week, we're going to see that it's the same crowd that abandons Jesus just as quickly as they latched onto him. So is it possible that this morning on this Palm Sunday that we are the crowd? You know, whether we would consider ourselves a Christian or not, do we have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is? Is Jesus the only king or is Jesus just another king to us? And Jesus's response, it further shows, it further explains just how mistaken the crowd was. Read with me verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You know, this, this might seem pretty anticlimactic, right? It's like, what the heck is going on? What, that's all Jesus is going to do? But what we just read is the turning point of the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, us as Americans, we have this unhealthy obsession with kings right we, we we call and claim everything is a king right elvis is a king of rock and roll michael jackson king of pop uh, lebron calls himself the king you know connor mcgregor he's the king of ireland you know even one of the most popular tv shows recently it's game of thrones it's all about kings and thrones and rule and reign um i didn't forget about gen z right you guys even call each other king as like a sort of compliment I don't know, that's kind of weird, but I can go on and on. But the point is our concept, our idea of what a king has kind of just been cheapened. It's just another term. And what Jesus does here by riding in on a donkey is smash all these ideas of, of what a king is supposed to look like, right? Because in our minds, we think a king in his triumphal entry, he's going to come riding upon a war horse like, like Aragon or, or Gandalf on, on Shadowfax, right? He's going to flaunt his power. He's going he's gonna to be flamboyant with his strength. Um, you know, we're like a we're, we're MCU church, so we're expecting an epic return like, like Thor coming back to Wakanda or, or Black Panther or whatever it is. We're expecting something epic. And that's exactly the type of entry that the crowd was expecting. They, they were cheering because 
they had their own idea of what a king was, of what a king is supposed to enter and look like. It was their fantasy of a messianic hero that would triumphantly overthrow the Roman government. Yet what does Jesus do? He comes in riding on a donkey. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting here that Jesus doesn't even say a single word. All it says is he, he finds a young donkey and he rides it into Jerusalem. That's all he does. And to us, we're, we're, we're trying to think, okay, maybe Jesus is just, just trying to be humble, right? He's just, he's just trying to quiet the crowd. And there might be some truth to that. But what I think is actually happening is um, the donkey during those times was actually a royal animal during that time. You know, kings would come in on horses, but that would be a symbol of power, of strength, of conquest. Um, but the donkey was what they would ride as a symbol of peace. You know, one of the professors at, at Talbot, his name's Ken Wei, and his, his thing is, is donkeys. He knows everything there is to know about donkeys in the Bible. And, and what he says is that the donkey is the Mercedes Benz of the biblical world, which is like, oh, okay. Um, he says that when royalty chose to ride a donkey, it was an intentional symbol of prestige, power, and wealth to indicate royal status. So by choosing to ride a donkey, it seems that Jesus is accepting the crowd's cry. He's hearing them say, save us now. He's accepting their call for him to be their king, even if they don't understand what they were asking for. And this is why Jesus riding in on a donkey, this is a turning point in the gospel of John. Without even saying a single word, he's making a statement about who he is. He's saying that his time had finally come because he knows how the story's going to end. Right Earlier in John 6, 15, Jesus avoids, he eludes the crowd that wants to make him king. But now in John 12, he's fully affirming his status as a king. Yet at the same time, he's denying the crowd's expectation. They expected a war horse, but he chose a donkey. He's accepting their desire for a king, but on a level that they don't yet understand. So you see, what we see is Jesus is the unexpected king. You know, uh, what makes this even more surprising is that Jesus, he, he kind of been laying low for the past couple of days. Right before in uh, John eleven fifty four, 54, it says that Jesus no longer walked openly because the Pharisees, they're planning to kill him. And, and they, they're planning to kill Jesus because precisely because of what was happening right now, which is the crowd was wanting to make him king. And what that meant for the Pharisees is they would lose all their status, their power, their influence. You know, Jesus didn't need to ride in on a donkey. He was used to walking around everywhere, right? You don't find any other place in the Bible where Jesus is riding an animal besides the triumphal entry. This is the only time he's riding on an animal. And he didn't even have to come to Jerusalem. He could have kept hiding. Yet by coming in on a donkey, he's basically proclaiming to the Pharisees, I'm here. Right? He's announcing his arrival to Satan. He's saying to the world, my time has finally come. In verse 15, it shows us that he's proclaiming through his actions that he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Our call to worship was Zechariah 9.9, right? You'll see the, the footnote in your Bibles referencing Zechariah 9.9. This is the king to whom salvation belongs. This is a king that is coming to bring peace to his people. Zechariah, Zechariah tells us that when this king comes, that wars will cease, that nations will have peace, and that the prisoners will be set free. So the crowd wants Jesus to save them from Rome, 
but Jesus is coming to save them from far more. He's coming to save them from sin, from death, and the wrath of God that they deserve. You know, this is the opposite of that famous line from, from The Dark Knight, right? At the end of the movie, Commissioner Gordon, he says, Batman, The Dark Knight is the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. Jesus is the complete opposite. Jesus' action shows that he's the king that we don't deserve, but the king that we need. We need this king even if we don't deserve him. You know, the crowd, they were looking for a king that would come with the sword, but this king, he's coming to give up his life. He's not the king that the crowd may want, but the one they need. You know, the crowd was looking for someone to rule the nation of Israel, but Jesus is the king that rules over the universe. He's not the king we might be looking for, but he's the king watching over us. This is the type of king that Jesus is, right? This is a king that we don't deserve, but the king that we need. This is who Jesus is. That's what we learn from Jesus' response to the crowd of riding in on a donkey. So we've seen that the crowd had misguided expectations of who Jesus is. We just looked at what kind of a king that he is. So we've covered half of our characters. So we'll move on to the next. How did the disciples take this all in, right? What's going on in their minds? Let's read verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remember that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. Not much is written. It's just one verse here, right? It's interesting that this verse is even included, um, but verse 16, it's just one sentence that John gives us regarding the disciples. So we're gonna take a brief look at the disciples and, and their understanding, because we think surely the disciples would be the one to put two and two together and understand exactly what's going on, the significance of Jesus's entry on the donkey, right? Because they're the ones that spent the past three years traveling with, learning from, doing ministry with Jesus. So we would expect Hey, not all the disciples, but at least the Jewish ones that knew Zechariah 9.9 and knew the prophecies, we would expect they would be the ones to see what's actually going down. But we see at this moment, even those disciples, none of them understand what's going on, right? They don't grasp the significance of Jesus's triumphal entry. And my guess is they were just caught up in the hype, just like the crowd was. They were kind of getting excited. They're getting a little bit riled up. And I think maybe they had their own expectations of Jesus, right? And now it seems Jesus is coming to liberate. He, Jesus is coming to fulfill my deepest desires and greatest dreams. So in that sense, I think the disciples show they're not too different from the crowd. And the text tells us that they only understand when Jesus was glorified, which means they only understand uh, when Jesus had resurrected. And for the disciples and for us today, Christianity only makes sense in light of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is what helps us to make sense of everything. And now we, we can say all this today because we know the end of the story. But do we truly understand what's happening? Right? Are we like the disciples that we might think we know Jesus? We spend time with him, yet we don't really fully comprehend him. Right? Do we just get caught up in the hype of the things around us that we lose sight of Jesus as king? Is Jesus just someone that we see as a, as a friend, counselor, or a genie in a bottle, rather than the one who died and rose again for our sin? And we, I'm being a little bit harsher, and, and I think I can because we know what's going to happen. 
But the disciples, it's obvious from the text, they didn't know what was going on. Their lack of understanding shows us just how important, just how crucial the resurrection is. And the last group of characters in our passage will emphasize that as well. So uh, let's read verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Um, I find this last verse uh, to be a strange way for John to end the story. Again, there isn't much. It's just one sentence, just one piece of dialogue, just one verse about the Pharisees. <clears throat> and it seems like they're seeing what's happening with the crowd. They're seeing them wave their palm branches and saying Hosanna. And it seems to me that the Pharisees are just accepting defeat. All right, they're resigned. And I think the way they're feeling is the the way I used to feel the night before a final, I had to get a perfect score on to pass the class, right? Or for some of us that have quotas at the end of the month and we're way below, there's no chance of us meeting that quota. That's the kind of sinking feeling the Pharisees are feeling. They're exasperated, right? Because now it's almost certain, it seems certain that they've lost. Thousands of people, they're waving their palm branches. They're calling Jesus as King of Israel. And what they say, the, the world has gone after him. The world truly has gone after him. In their minds, they're going to lose their status, their power to Jesus. And now the only choice that they had in their mind was to kill him. This is, this is the only course of action that would preserve their power, reputation, influence. Yet what the Pharisees didn't know was that even this, this plan to kill the coming king, that was all part of God's providence as well. That was all according to God's plan of redemption. Uh, the, the Pharisees' words, it brings to our mind Luke 9, 25, right? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Right? This is what Jesus says to his disciples earlier on about the cost of discipleship, about what it, what it takes to follow Jesus. It's to daily pick up your cross. It's to daily follow him. But what's the point of gaining the whole world if you have to exchange your life? And the Pharisees' words, they're truer than they know. According to them, Jesus is gaining the whole world right now. He has the, the world is going after him. But that also means, like Jesus said in Luke, that means he will have to forfeit himself. He's going to gain the whole world and lose himself. He's going to lose his life for the sake of the world. The king will give himself up to gain the whole world and bring them into his kingdom. Jesus is going to take up his own life, his, his own cross in a matter of days, and he's going to provide an example for us to follow. So I think John includes this last verse, verse 19, to remind us that amidst this Palm Sunday, amidst the triumphal entry, amidst the palm trees and, and the hosannas, the sobering reality is that the king has come into Jerusalem to die. Jesus has come in on a donkey to be crucified. The Pharisees show us that the resurrection of Jesus, which is so important for us, it can only happen if he dies. He has to die before he can resurrect. So we've, we've taken a look at all of the characters in our passage, right? The crowd, Jesus, disciples, and the Pharisees. And the crowd, they were celebrating Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus, not knowing that it was Jesus's resurrection that they really needed. 
right? Jesus's wordless entrance upon a donkey reveals he's the unexpected king that we don't know that we need. He is the king of prophecy. He's the king of Zechariah 9.9. He's the king of all the prophecies made about him in the Old Testament. The disciples, they don't fully understand. They don't fully grasp what's going on. They just seem to be riding the wave. They, 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 they think that because I spent time with Jesus, I know exactly what's going on. When in reality, they had no clue what was happening. And just like we saw right now, the Pharisees, they're devising a scheme to crucify, to kill the son of God. But what they don't know, what they couldn't scheme is God's sovereign plan included all of this. So I want to return to the question I asked earlier, who are we shouting Hosanna to? Who are we looking to save us? Who are we saying save now? I think knowing what kind of a king that Jesus really is, who are we asking to save us? And the deepest cry of all humanity is this, it's to save us, to deliver us. Are we, are we waving our palm branches towards lawmakers or on social media to deliver us from the, the massacres that are happening, the, the racism and sexism that's going on that we don't know why it's happening? Are we doing all these things to be delivered? Are we shouting Hosanna to the vaccine, right? To, re to rescue us from this pandemic? Are we even looking forward to, to meeting in person? Is, has that become uh, what will deliver us from our spiritual apathy? Who are we crowning as king this Palm Sunday morning? You know, I ran a half marathon yesterday. I'm surprised I've been able to stand this long. Uh, my body is so sore. But that half marathon, it was probably one of the toughest things I've done for sure during the quarantine, maybe even my whole life. But the last two miles, they were by far the hardest, right? That it was hot, I was cramping, everything just seemed to be happening in slow motion, right? I can remember the, the street I was running on toward Boba time in Buena Park, right? I can remember all these little details of the, of the friends that I was running with shouting, come on, Jim, you can do this. I remember all these things, that last chapter, that last segment of the half marathon. And I think what's happening today, I think what's happening this Holy Week is similar. You know, in John and the rest of the Gospels, after this triumphal entry, everything seems to kind of slow down, right? The Gospel writers, they devote the last chapters of their book to give us insight to all the little details of what happens each day of this Holy Week leading up to Easter. So as Pastor Sam mentioned, we're going to be, as a staff, and and with Paul and James, our interns, we're going to be uploading a devotional video um, each day of this Holy Week to help us navigate the events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I invite you this week, this Holy Week, let's really meditate each day and ask ourselves, is Jesus really our coming king? Is Jesus really the one we're looking forward to? Or is he just someone we've heard about? Someone we kind of know and think, okay, that's cool. Right. If you're a believer, has something else taken its place as the king in your life? You know, functionally, is the king in your life the king that you want or is it the king that you need? You know, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, I invite you. Let's journey together this week. Let's see if it could be possible that Jesus is the unexpected king that you didn't know you needed. The one that you've been looking for. Could he be the one that fulfills your deepest cry of Hosanna, of save now? And church, we know the end of not only the Holy Week story, but we know what's going to happen once Christ returns on earth. 
right? I'm going to read for us Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. And it tells us that there's going to be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Right? We're going to be waving palm branches, but we're going to be waving palm branches to the God that sits on the throne. We're, we're not going to have to cry out Hosanna because we're going to be with him. God will have saved us. God, the king who sits on the throne. And that's the end of the story that we're ultimately looking forward to. And it's because we know this end of the story that we're able to appreciate and treasure what happens this Holy Week. Let's pray.